We ain't sleeping till Hollywood, Hollywood. We ain't sleeping. It is Caleb McDonald. And it's your girl Galen Smith. And you are listening to No Sleep Till Hollywood, the podcast where we're not sleeping until we make it into Hollywood. And while we're up, we will be discussing the state of the industry and our place in it. And for today, we have a very special topic uh, with a very special friend of mine. So today we're going to be talking about reality television, the impact that it has on Black representation, the legacy of Black creatives in this space. And to have this conversation, I wanted to bring on one of my really good friends. I've known this person for over a decade now, which makes me feel really old when I say it. But you know, it's been over a decade. Met in high school, also went to college together. Oh my gosh, this whole episode is a Syracuse episode. Everybody who's on this episode and our producer, we all went to Syracuse. It's a gang. So very excited about that. But I'm going to read her very illustrious bio. <clears throat> also, we're all Newhouse Mafia, too. I just peeped all that together. Oh. It's a <laughs> Black Newhouse Mafia gang. <laughs> but I'm going to read this very illustrious bio. <clears throat> Abigail J. Covington is a writer and business strategist with a passion for creating discourse about issues that affect underrepresented identities. Covington is a two-time alumna of Syracuse University, earning a BA in writing, rhetoric, and composition with the dual minors in public communications, IT design, and startups, and a master's in new media management. Abigail is energized by innovation, by seeking purpose, and by creating connections between dissimilar groups. She brings an inquisitive nature to her work, asking big questions and breaking apart complex systems to highlight the importance of nuance and of understanding the unique individuality all clients and issues possess. Her years of experience as a liaison between varying bodies attempting to reach common ground assist her in client work around culture, change, and transformation efforts. Covington is passionate about serving others and being a resource in her community, always looking for opportunities to grow and evolve. Covington is an eternal student dedicated towards her continual personal development. I also want to point out that this person has a podcast called Strategy Sessions, um, in which I was a producer on, where she discusses a lot of these things as well. But we are so excited to have Abigail on the podcast. So Abby, thank you for coming to chat with us today. Of course, glad to be here. All right, y'all. So we're getting into this topic. Um, reality television is such an interesting thing because there's scripted television, obviously, fictional stories being told, created by writers and showrunners. But then there's this whole genre of reality TV, which is really centered around everyday people living their lives for the camera. Um, and so we're gonna do a quick little history lesson. The first reality show ever was Candid Camera, premiering in 1947. So it's a TV version of a radio show called Candid Microphone, which introduced the hidden camera concept, which went around capturing the reactions of ordinary people being confronted with unusual and often challenging situations. The big tagline of that show is, smile, you're on candid camera. After that point, 10 more shows followed from 1965 up until 1998. And we kind of move into reality TV from there. We have shows like The Real World in 1992, The Challenge in 1998 are some of the only original reality shows that are still airing to this day. And in this day, we have plenty of variations of what reality TV is. We have the court subgenre, which is your Judge Mathis, your Judge Judy. Recently, I believe they have Judge Harvey. I think Steve Harvey's up in the court now. Very interesting. Yeah, Steve Harvey out here doing relationship court, and it's ridiculous. I have right. watched it. Just like our justice system. Well, um, there's the dating and romance subgenres where, you know, we, we want to find love. That's like the Bachelorette. That's like Love Island. I think one of my favorites recently, HBO did like F-Boy Island. 
Uh, oh. You have to find out who's the authentic, genuine man and who is just a hoe, so to speak. One of my TikTok stars that I follow, he's on there. He was on it. I haven't watched it yet, but there's this TikToker who's on there. And he geeks me on TikTok, so I just know he's probably acting real stupid on that show. To cover the rest, there's also docu-soaps like The Real World, Real Housewives, where you get, you know, some drama. That's the reality TV that we know today. Um, mm-hmm. There are game shows such as Big Brother, Amazing Race, watching people as contestants to win a prize. There's hidden camera shows, which is sort of like candid camera that we just mentioned. That's like punked, WWYD, what would you do? Law enforcement shows, which is very interesting. I wonder how we got there. Uh, America's Most Wanted, Cops. There's makeover lifestyle shows such as Tidying Up. There's Queer Eye, which definitely took people by storm. I would say it was a cultural reset at the time, but I don't know exactly how to use that term, if I'm being fully <laughs> honest. And then there are talent reality shows, and that's where you got America's Got Talent, American Idol, so many shows that really uh, capture like people's talent, and you know that's where we get the soft stories and all of that. Yeah, those are the things that are set up to make me cry. Like I am simply the person when they make those packages and they're like, hey, look, wonderful person who's competing for this thing. Do you have any sad stories to tell us? Like, we need to make this Black girl named Galen who lives in D.C. cry. Like, that's what we're here to do. And I fall for them every time. I weep. And usually if I weep, I'm now rooting for you for the rest of the show. And when you don't make it, I'll be ready to fight. So, you know, for all the people out there on reality TV, tell your sad stories because then I'm rooting for you. Um, but the reality TV genre or, you know, category in general, as Caleb was, you know, going through those subgenres, really varied. But something that's really interesting is when you look at the broad category of reality television and then we think about Black people in it. So as much as, you know, Black people have created the genre and really have made the genre what it is, Black folks in this industry are not really getting their things. The first all-Black reality show was College Hill, which came out in 2004. And I'm a College Hill fan, y'all. I have seen almost every season. I really was a stand for that show. I don't really know how they were going to class. Like, I would like to know what everyone's grades looked like in the season that they were on the show, because I'm sure they were terrible. But really loved, um, you know, it had to be. Because, like, y'all was really out here on these cameras. Then y'all were going on these random trips. And then BT always had y'all doing unpaid free labor, you know, yep. on behalf of some Rock the Vote campaign or something <laughs> that they was going on. Like, it just was, it was messy. It was very messy. Um, and so College Show came out 57 years after Candy Camera. So it took 57 years for an all-Black reality show to be created. And of course, it was on our good sis BET. And then from there on, we move into Flavor of Love. I love New York, you know, love and hip-hop, Atlanta, New York, Hollywood, Myrtle Beach. I don't know where else they be at, but all the places that, you know, love and hip-hop be. And just moving into all of those shows. Um, but, you know, we kind of run through some history and stuff. But I would love to talk about Abigail and Caleb. What were y'all's first introductions to reality television? Um, I feel like it was kind of scattered. So when I was a kid, um, I used to have Dish Cable, I remember it. And I remember my brother and I used to share a uh, the satellite. So whatever he was watching, I had to watch and vice versa. So I remember like it just caused a lot of strife because my parents had to make this rule of like, you can't like watch more than like a 30 minute show. You have to trade off every half hour unless you both agree. And I was like begging them to give me my own. So eventually they got me my own. And I literally watched the most random stuff. I used to watch a show called How Do I Look, where it was like people who were terribly dressed and had no fashion sense would get referred in by a friend or a family member and they would like give them a full makeover. I used to watch Extreme Makeover, lots of transformation shows. 
So a particular episode I do remember was when a girl was like, yeah, I haven't been to the dentist in 10 years. And they had to give her like all fresh veneers. And I was like, yeah, sis, what's going on there? Um, Seven-year-old me was questioning that. So it's like a lot of those kinds of shows, Extreme Makeover, Home Edition, anything that had to do with like some kind of transformation taking place. Because moving that bus, I was I was in the house talking about move that bus. Like I was out in the street, like <laughs> I had cut a two by four and helped put the house together myself. All right. Ask me about an episode. I can tell you about it. You take me <laughs> back. Because back to what Galen was saying about sob stories, yo. Ty Pennington, had, he could pull a story out. Okay. Like, oh, they had this lovely home, but it got destroyed. We're going to do something for them. And then they had like this one girl, she was allergic to the sun, so she can come outside. So they built her like a whole like interior thing where she could feel outside, although she was inside. It had like a screen porch. They were making full houses and then they would like pay off the mortgage. And I was like, right. No, I like I was, I was very much, um, it was moving. It definitely yes, was moving. Yes. And then it just transitioned into like American Idol and like more of like the competition reality shows. I used to watch like Iron Chef America, things like that, where it was either episodic competition or it was like long-term investment in like a particular mm-hmm. person. Similar to you, actually, my introduction to reality TV, I live in a house with two sisters, one older, one younger. Uh, it very much was the household where we would cover the cable box so the other person could not use the remote. Um, Y'all so are that's... terrible. <laughs> that's <laughs> oh, no, we were, we, were, we were cutthroat. We, were <laughs> we definitely, we were vying for that TV. Um, that being said, there were also times where I was grounded. So, you know, I just had to catch clips of whatever they were watching as I was passing through the room. That being said, I know my oldest sister, oh, she would put on Bad Girls Club. I think that was like my first ever look at reality TV. But then my youngest sister had The Bachelor, two shows that like I would watch with them. Like, no, I could admit I enjoyed them, too, were Ron's House and Big Brother. Two different shows, but like, no, they had me. Because one, I'm like, okay, who's going to win? What team is real? Run's house. So maybe it's just the Black representation. Maybe it's the fact that this pastor was always preaching to these people. First you of know. all, he would be in that bathtub but on that the bubble bath, child. It He'd was, be in that bathtub on the Blackberry, like, da-da-da-da-da, love, rap, Listen, run. it was the bubble bath <laughs> with the Blackberry, okay? Because <laughs> he, was, he was soaking, okay? He had to soak his thoughts. I just want to know why, like, Rusty never got any chapstick, though, because his lips was ashy the whole show. <laughs> it was just consistently a problem. I was like, all these people in this house, I know nobody got no Carmex for this child. They had money, so, like, it wasn't like y'all couldn't afford the Carmex. Like, I know they had money because Diggy was throwing away soap after he used it once every time. That's so, so wild. But, yeah, I used to watch Run's House, too. I didn't understand Big Brother, so I was like, okay, they're competing, I'm like, it's not like Survivor because it's, it's not hard. like the wilderness, but I'm like, it's not like real world. I just didn't really understand like what they were really trying to do. And I remember trying to watch it and like one, it come on too many times a week for me. It got about three, four episodes a week. I can't watch all that. I have other things to do. I gave up after like two weeks because I was exhausted. Um, but no, Big Brother, it, it seems interesting. I just don't get it. I wanted um, to watch the season where the black, the cookout group, like the black group won. I, but I heard that, that the season isn't like really all that good holistically but like i was like well i'll watch if a black person wins though right i want to know how they won like i just want to know how six black people made it to the end i just need to know understand that very much that it just is my alliances you know alliances on reality television don't ever like stay together like i'm a so this is not like my first introduction to reality television but like i used to be a challenge stan i used to watch the challenge front to back all the seasons i used to follow everybody on twitter like one of the uh what's her name laurel she follows me on Twitter. Like, I used to really be on the challenge. 
that show, it made sense. But the alliances, they were always so, they'd be like, oh, we're voting out all the rookies. But then somehow a vet would fall in love with a rookie. And now he out here taking out all the vets. Like it just was always some mess where I was like, y'all alliances are trash. But like my introduction to reality TV, this might be a little ghetto. But I remember sneaking and watching Flavor of Love, Charm School, in my basement. I was literally watching it. I've been watching a marathon for like two, three hours. And my dad comes downstairs. He's like, what are you watching? And I was like, uh, uh. He's like, what is it about? I was like, it's a show about rules. And I was in trouble because I was certainly not supposed to be watching no TV 14 show at the age of like seven and a half. It was just a lot going on. And my father was not here for any of it, but very much a fan of that. And then, you know, the OG. I don't like them, but I do remember watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians for a time in my youth. Like I did, I did watch that for a time. I, I watched that up through the Reggie Bush situation. I watched yeah. through Chloe and Lamar too, with like yeah. that show both seasons when they went to Miami, like through like the fourth or fifth breakup with Scott. Like I was, I was, I was there. there for a period of time, but they started striking out with me in high school, and then they like after the Amber Rose situation, I was done. Black like, trying yeah. to double down, and after Jordan Woods, they'll never be able to resurrect themselves in my book. So. They will never resurrect themselves, um, but I will say that Miss Kimberly Noel will be getting my money when it's time to buy the shapewear because Skims do what they need to do. I, too, would like to have a BBL in a bag, so. Well, if you got your ass up and worked, you would have Mm. both of them. I would have what I needed. (laughs) (laughs) No one wants to work anymore. Well, the apology was, I'm sorry if it was received that way. That way. You know? She, she said something about it. But while speaking about, you know, our favorite Black family on TV, um, what is the Black representation like on the reality shows you guys watch today? A lot of, okay, so I'm in that, like, romance genre slash, like, I don't really do the whole, like, docu-soaps. Like, I don't really watch Real Housewives. I got through three seasons of Potomac, but then I couldn't do it anymore. So I watch, like, anything that is, like, a socio or psychological experiment. So Are You the One when it first came out? I was all over that show for, like, the first three seasons. Married at First Sight, seasons 9 through 13. I've been watching. I did not watch this season because I just, the past two seasons have not been great. But shows like that, um, Love is Blind, um, The Circle, just anything that puts people in kind of situations that are odd and then kind of seeing what the human condition is when you have certain restrictions placed on you and you can't necessarily move about in the way that you normally would. For me, that's interesting because I'm just a very analytical person and I like to like analyze everyone's behaviors and choices. So with that, though, I think there's a limited amount of Black representation, particularly in like romance-based shows. And that's across the board, regardless of it's too hot to handle or I don't even watch that show. I watched like the first five episodes of the first season. I can't do it. But just across the shows, though, there's always like just one or two Black people. And there's typically almost like a tokenist favorite. And then there's just like another one there for like good measure. And I think that's especially when it comes to relationships. That presents a number of problems that we already kind of discussed internally in terms of desirability of Black women or men, as well as just the fail slash success rate or negative success rate of a lot of Black relationships due to various reasons. And so when you already put like 20 people together and two or three of them are Black, you're kind of setting up a situation in which we're going to have to address one of these layers um, at some point or other. So... No, I agree because, um, like, I know personally, I don't watch many reality TV shows. I need as much narrative as possible. Not to say that reality TV doesn't have narrative. Oh, they be crafting with the clips they be getting. But um, 
Yeah, no, it's just not necessarily something I look for, but every time that I do find my eyes on some reality TV, yeah, it's very much, oh, here are the people that are taking up the seat at the table. Their melanin is kind of used as their selling point. It is their personality, and it goes one of three ways. Either they are very proper and they are doing the Black community proud, or they are making us feel like, really, you're doing this to us. They chose you on the show. They picked you for this exact reason. And then the third one where it's like, oh, okay. Like, like you are bringing something new, relatively speaking. But it is always like Black people are paired with other Black people and not so Or I'd like to add a fourth archetype to that because I also feel like you have the people who just pretend that they're not Black. Like, they're neutral. Like, they're very neutral about their race identity. Like, if it serves in the moment to be Black in the particular conversation to get the vote or to not be eliminated, then they're Black. But when it comes time to speak up for, like, Black issues or if there's something that's going on in the house, but it doesn't benefit them to be Black, then they just sitting there being chill and being very calm. Like, I feel like that was very much a lot of the MTV shows of, like, The Real World, The Challenge, all of those shows. Like, there were always a lot of Black people who were just, like, it would be a whole bunch of people ganging up on a black woman and everybody else is black. is just sitting there because it doesn't serve them to step in. But then after that person gets eliminated, then it was, I didn't like the way y'all treated this black woman, but you ain't saying nothing when she was here. Like it's a lot of that kind of going on. I feel like in the, like the terms of the reality shows, I also like the more strategic reality shows, but I'm also really just a fan of like, if you have a personality that I enjoy and you have a show, then I'm interested in it. Like I love Tiana and Iman's show with their family and their kids. And it's really just her being a working mom, trying to you know become a director and Iman is transitioning in his basketball career. And they're raising these two little black girls. And it's just like, no drama, very much love, giggles and laughter. And I love that show. One of my favorite reality shows to come out in the last year. I definitely would agree with that. I would say like the more like relationship shows are more like now, but before, cause I was either competition slash also like family oriented reality shows. So when Nelly had his, those two seasons of Nellyville I used to watch. Nellyville was a bop. Okay. Nellyville was good. Okay. Before T.I. and Tiny got weird. Um, I used to watch yeah. the family hustle. Monica had a show still standing. I watched a little bit of Keisha Cole's show, but she kind of got on my nerves. So I had to stop. But same thing with Frankie and Nephi. But I just, I was very much a family show, like friend's house we talked about. And then didn't Angela and Vanessa have their own show? Yes, they, just they did. Them? Okay. I used to watch that too because I remember they had the pastry store and then Angela kept changing what she wanted to do every five minutes. Daddy's Little Girls. Yes, that was my show. Deion Sanders used to have a reality show. A lot of people don't remember that, but Deion's Family Playbook, it was back when he was married to his now ex-wife, Pilar Sanders, and their kids were young. Like They were like maybe six, eight, really young. Well, his youngest three kids were young and then he has two older children from his mm -hmm. previous marriage. So like my whole family used to watch that. So I was definitely like a family oriented reality show person as well. Just it depended on whose family it was and was actually interested in seeing right. that family. I was having this conversation with somebody where it's like, it's so not easy to get a reality show, but like it's easy to get a reality show. Everybody has a show nowadays. They make shows about some of the most ridiculous stuff. I mean, like they have a show on Netflix called like, is this really a cake or something like that? Mm -hmm. And it's just them it's a cake. cutting into stuff to see if it's, if it's cake or not. Like, you can get a reality show about anything. So to me, it's like, I'm really personality driven as much as I'm like format driven. So like, if it's a game and I like the game, then I'll watch. But if the game is good and the, like the cast is bad, then I'm also over it. So I'm really am into these, like some more of those things. I also personally, Abigail and I have had this conversation. I really enjoyed Sweet Life on HBO Max. 
And the reason I enjoyed it was it was a whole bunch of young Black kids who were successful or on the way to being successful and just like living their lives in Hollywood and just like building things together. And I just, I personally have not seen that a lot in television in scripted and non-scripted content. And I just thought it was fun. I mean, there was a lot of like flexing for the gram that just didn't need to occur and just got people in trouble a lot with their words and their actions. But I really enjoyed that show. I thought it was fun. Issa Rae, if you're listening, I know you keep saying you want to bring it to the DMV and I still live in DC. So put your girl on the show. I'm screaming. I couldn't really handle Sweet Life. That for me, it's like, I I know that reality TV can create tropes and caricatures of people, but I was going to start. And then the like little drama seeds that have been sown in the initial few episodes that like people were telling me about, they'd be like, oh, did you watch? And I'm like, not yet. So they start talking about it. And I was like, I just don't like what I'm hearing. Like, I was like, this is the kind of thing that's going to annoy me and irritate me. So I'm going to just pass. I do love to see young Black people doing what they're doing, making money, having fun, having a good time. But it also was very clear based on a lot of the things that like I read about the show and like saw on Twitter that like Issa Rae was funding a lot of this lifestyle. This is Mm -hmm. not like the inherent lifestyle that they were living on their own. And no shade to them. I mean, it takes time to, you know, get up there. But I was just like, so what am I actually watching for? I was like, the the trauma. I mean, the representation, but the drama that's embedded in the representation. And I was just like, I'll pass. But I mean, it's another form of reality. I'm happy that Issa, you know, has ventured into this. I'll, you know, I always support her, but it's just not for me. Yeah, it definitely gave like, it, I mean, it gives Baldwin Hills. It's very clearly like an homage in so many ways to Baldwin Hills. I believe one of the kids from Baldwin Hills is a producer on the show um, now. See, so Baldwin like, Hills, one that was my show. But I also felt like I gave them more of a pass because of like age. And like, I don't think they were set up as like, they were supposed to be like the Black Beverly Hills kind of situation, but it still didn't feel like that. So it was just, and I think maybe because I was in middle school too, it was like, oh, this is what, being like their age is going to be and it was not um but also, they had their drama because remember then they like introduced like the kids from like Inglewood mm-hmm. and it was like oh they went to a party they were like oh who is this this ghetto boy that you are hanging out with like mm. and they tried to make that the thing of like you know Inglewood versus like Baldwin Hills and like make it this drama like this drama that didn't really like I think the thing with the, both of those shows is like the drama that exists in this show feels manufactured like, right. it feels very much like, these ain't real issues y'all got. Somebody just told y'all to, like, look at her crazy so they can make a storyline about the show. Like, you don't really have an issue with any of this. Like, it just felt mm-hmm. very contrived. But I still enjoy it. But it's definitely, like, y'all are working real hard to make this happen. You know, because as someone who doesn't really look into reality TV, I will say, as I walk across the living room, if there's drama going on, that will keep my attention. Because, yeah, the drama's kind of what pulls you in. Um, that being said, um, it's also interesting in like dating shows, specifically when we do have black couples where like you could tell that the camera operators, the people in charge, they're creating drama that's not there. Mm-hmm. And that's always interesting because it's very clear that you are pitting the only people of color on the show, specifically the only black people on the show against each other. Because, like, in dating shows, like, what do you guys realize with Black couples and how viewers see them, how other couples view them? It's always different. For sure. And I also think when they can't manufacture that by, like, doing it during production, they do it in post-production. Because season 11 of Married at First Sight was in New Orleans, and that's one of my favorite seasons. But uh, it's because I follow, like, everyone from the well, my favorites from that season. And 
there was two black couples, Miles and Karen and Woody and Imani. And it was unique because um, the two black men, Miles and Woody, were actually best friends. So they both went into the show as best friends, which was like an experience they really hadn't had before. And they both were selected. And so they like had the same friend group and stuff, which also I think helped them throughout the show because they had someone like close to them who they could kind of like mint to about the process, talk it through with. But they also were both like very emotionally mature Black men. And I was like, oh, great. Like this depiction is awesome. But they did, because they were emotionally mature and they were with pretty emotionally mature partners, they didn't fight a lot. Neither couple did. And so when they initially showed Miles' wife, Karen, she seemed very standoffish and like the way that they edited her made her seem like she was consistently questioning his masculinity because he wasn't very aggressive. And she had previously been cheated on another relationship that she was in for five years and the dude had a baby on her and stuff. So it made it just seem that she was completely not trusting to the point of like not wanting to be at all like physically intimate with him. And it, it did make her a villain because I was very annoyed with her watching the show. Then when we got to the reunion, they both said they had to stop watching the show because it literally was causing arguments in their present relationship. They decided to stay together. They're still married. They've been married for a few years, but it was causing arguments that didn't need to be there because they, for instance, he talked, Miles talked openly. He's a mental health advocate about his depression and anxiety. And they cut that scene when he told her and like opened up to her with her being like, I don't know if I can be with a man like that. Like, what does that say about like your masculinity? But what she was saying that about wasn't, his depression and anxiety, but when they piece those things together and they watched it back, like they had to have a conversation. Like, did you really question my masculinity because of my mental health condition? She was like, no. So they had to stop watching for the sake of their relationship. And I think that it, it, it does say something when we kind of see, or we don't see people, you know, behaving quote unquote inappropriately or immaturely. And then we see that come out in post-production, but then we hear from them that that's not actually the story. It's like, what are you trying to accomplish here? I think that for people who, if you watch Dear White People in season four, they have a really big storyline where Coco is basically on Big Brother, but it's like a college version of it. And we see a lot of how she deals with her producer. Like she has multiple producers and Coco's like, I want to be the first black person to win this you know, show. And like her producer, at one point she switches producers because they get into a fight, but like he's literally out here, like they're coaching them in ways to say things that cause drama, that cause friction to, you know, like make viewers like or dislike them. And at one point her producer is like, if you want to win, then you need to listen to me. And she's like, no, I want to win on my own terms. And it's like, as a black woman in that situation and as black people on reality TV, we often have to navigate like who we are in real life and what is the persona that is going to get us closer to our goal on reality television. I've been reading a lot of articles about black women and their decisions to go into reality TV particularly like the married to medicine franchise um, cast or like some of the black women who've infiltrated some of these, you know, housewives of series. And they're like, my goal is X, Y, and Z. Like, this is what I want for my brand. These are the business opportunities that I want to come from this. This is why I'm on reality TV. But like, you know, Abby, like you were saying, like so much of that editing changes the character of the person where it's like, I might not like you because of what I saw on the show, but that, Half of what I saw, like you said, I could be responding to a completely different moment that they stitched with something else. And now I look like the bad guy in a situation. I think that happened a lot for me with Love is Blind. I think a lot of the editing around Ayana and Jarrett's storylines made things feel weird because they kept having this conversation of Ayana saying like, I feel like I need to see all these changes from you and I'm not seeing them. But then they still decided to get married, but they would bring it up of like, 
oh, we had this conversation that we never see on camera. And it's just like, why are they upset? What are these behaviors she's alluding to that we never see? Like what's going on? And it creates these holes in our understanding of the show. And then we fill them in. And obviously the human imagination, everybody's watching reality TV for drama. So we're filling it in with drama that may or may not even be there. I would love to mention there's this, it is a scripted show, but there's a scripted show called Unreal. And it came out on Lifetime. And when I tell you I ate that show up, it focused on this producer and how this producer would constantly have to like spin narratives with the contestants. It was scripted. So it was about a real reality TV show in the fictional world. It was actually based on The Bachelor. Um, it was based on the relationship between a producer, Lisa Levinson, and the creator of The Bachelor, Mike Fleiss, I believe you pronounce his name. That's and messy. yeah, no, it was um, in the show, you see that like it actually brought her near to one of the contestants had a suicide attempt. The actual producer who was trying to cause the drama, even though she felt morally weird about it, um, it was ruining her own mental health. She had a psychotic break at some point. Like it, it took a real nice, deep look at what reality TV can be. And it was extra um, engaging considering that like it was based off an actual relationship between a producer and a creator. That's interesting. I think one of the things that when I was like doing some research is the idea that um, when reality TV first came out, no one expected it to last this long. And so like a lot of the personalities that were on the show, like in the early shows of like, we think of um, Tammy Roman when she was on the real world, like she got a lot of negativity for speaking about her abortion. She got a lot of negativity when one of her castmates, you know, ripped a blanket off her when she was partially nude underneath and like how they had conversations about, you know, rape culture. And how she essentially, I don't want to say she got that person kicked off the show, but like she was the catalyst of that incident. And like thinking about how she received a lot of, you know, vitriol and just, you know, negativity and that people, networks weren't prepared to protect their talent. They were ready to capitalize off of this black talent, as we've seen with, I mean, Flavor of Love literally spun off how many different shows from that one thing then created all those I love Ray J's and everything else are the same format repeated over and over again by Viacom. Like black women specifically have really created this genre, but there hasn't been the level of protection. I think about Rachel Lindsay when she won the bachelorette in 2016 or she didn't win it. She was the bachelorette and then she, her life went well. Um, but in 2016 and like, she's been very vocal about the issues that she's had in trying to diversify the franchise and how there's been a lot of this, you know, backlash from the American public. And I think it's always interesting that, Black people in reality television, as they are in life, are judged so much harsher for the behaviors exhibited by their white counterparts. People call Real Housewives of, I don't watch Real Housewives of anybody, but Real Housewives of Atlanta, people are like, oh, it's so ghetto. They're just, you know, the worst. And it's like, what's her name on Real Housewives of New Jersey? Teresa, she'd be flipping tables every season and y'all don't call it ghetto or anything else. Like it's a lot of that, the double standard of it all that we see in a lot of those things. And so- what critiques have you guys noticed um, in terms of just Black people in reality television in comparison to other white castmates? Um, well, I, I think there's, there's two things, right? Because there's comparison to other castmates, and then I think there's just the unfair standard of it altogether. So if we go to Love is Blind in this past season, I think Chicago collectively was a group of emotionally defunct adults, except for Ayana. Um, she is queen. Yeah. We defend her. I will, stand, her. I, I will ride for her at any point in time. But having acknowledged that, I think that they're like, you could talk about 
the inequitable treatment between black and white characters. But I also think that what I noticed talking about Love is Blind with a lot of like my black women friends was like a very strong distaste for Jared. <laughs> and it was, it was very immediate. And I'm I, lie. It. I didn't like him. I didn't like him for a I long know we time. had several conversations, but you weren't the only one. I had several other black women friends who like watched the show. And at first I was, I was right there too. Like, I think the first, because Love is Blind, like they released it like four episodes or three, three to four episodes at a time. The first chunk of episodes was not great for him. The middle ones are what changed my mind. Cause I, I still had like a little thread of hope for him in the beginning. The middle one completely like had me on his side. And then by the end, I was like a full on Jared advocate. So I think with that though, it was difficult because Jared was 31, is 30, maybe 32 now, whatever. But he was 31 at the time uh, the, the show was filming. And then I was 27. And just for quick, quick backstory for everybody who is listening. Basically, they were dating. He was down to two people, which was Mallory and Ayana. And last season, the lead Black girl, when I say lead Black girl, I mean the one that I was rooting for, Lauren, she ended up in a great relationship, but her husband's white. <laughs> so we hadn't actually seen a couple, a black couple get together and they are getting together excited on scene. So they don't know what the race of the other person is. I mean, they can describe themselves, but they don't necessarily like, they don't know what they look like. Um, and so Jared chooses Mallory. Mallory rejects his almost proposal. And then yeah. he cries about it. And the next day then tells Ayana, by the way, I proposed to this girl yesterday. And Ayana breaks down because she had already told him like, you're my number one. Like there's no one else for me, but you like in this situation. So she has a moment and then he comes back the next day and proposes to her. And she's like, well, I don't want to be second choice. So immediately people are like, you know, no, <laughs> we're not Jared fans. Like he wanted someone else. Like why are black women his second choice? And I was, and I was there too, like very much like, why does she have to be the second choice? Why are we having two black people who are some of the strongest personalities on the show and more than I enjoy to watch have to go through this? Like I, I just, it was, I did not want to see it. And I didn't really Especially because I felt like he didn't, like, at least in how we saw on the show, because again, we just talked about, you know, narratives being constructed. It wasn't like when he said, oh, I proposed to her and then came back and was like, oh, but I want to be with you. Like, I didn't feel like he, he justified that. Like, he didn't, like, it didn't didn't. really feel like he was like, I I proposed to her because I thought this, but like, no, I really know it's you because X, Y, and Z. And I feel this deep in my heart. It was kind of just like, I'm a rock with you. It, it, like, yes, and it, it did feel very much like, well, if I can't have her, at least I'm gonna go home with you. And Ayana made that she she questioned that. She was like, eh, it took her a minute to accept because she was like, I don't want to just be your constellation prize. And then once you see them together, you're like, oh, like they click. Like this is definitely. I was like, okay, this is gonna work. This is gonna work. They get to the honeymoon, and finally, the honeymoon, they get to see all the other couples who matched up, which include people they might have talked to who they never met in person before. And that's Mallory. messy. And I'm going to tell you now, that was the mess. Like to me, I was like, yo, being a producer on that show, I just know whoever came up with that moment felt like a genius. If you see the Reddit threads, it's it's even crazier. So then Mallory is there with her fiance. She should have never been engaged. Never been with. Because she did not like him. Weird. And then Jared and Mallory end up like they, they had not talked since she rejected him. And he was crying like a baby when it happened. And so was Mallory. So like they never had like a closure conversation or anything. And they get to flirting and stuff during the conversation with both of their fiancés on the other side of the beach. And so that had me like, no, that was inappropriate. But then at the same time, I was like, you know what? I'm gonna give him just a, like a literal itty bitty piece of grace because, you know, maybe he just is not there yet at maturity level, but, you know, he's not Carlton from last season. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe he just needs to like 
take his time to get there. And my, some of my friends were like, no, Axe, I'm done with it. And as he kind of comes around by towards the end, I was like, you know, he did prove himself. He apologized for making her feel like a second choice. It took him some time to actually change the behaviors. Like, oh, wait, I'm engaged. I can't come home at four o'clock in the morning because I'm out running my hookah business with my friends. So why are you a grown man with a hookah business? That's a completely different question, but I'm just going to leave that there. So you've been different. shading this man's hookah business this whole time. And listen, he making his money, friend. <laughs> because wh- why? Just no, no. I also hate hookah, so there's that. But, you know, he comes around. And so one of the things that I started to kind of ask some of my friends was, what is fair and equitable? And I think like having conversations around accountability and emotional maturity as it relates to Black people, Black relationships, and giving Black people as individuals the ability to grow, even if that growth is on camera, allowing them to make mistakes. And as long as they hold themselves accountable, allowing us to forgive them. Because when we as people see someone else, especially someone in the media or someone on TV do something wrong, what people say that they want is accountability, but really what people want is vindication. And the problem with vindication, yeah, the problem with vengeance is that vengeance doesn't really have an endpoint. Because at one point or another, it's going to be your turn to be held accountable for something. And you want the ability to be able to apologize, to change course, correct behavior, and move forward without being consistently reminded of what you once did or having some unpayable debt. Like, I'm a person of faith. It's like, listen, Jesus died on the cross. I said, I'm sorry. I changed my behavior. What else do you want from me? You know? Um, and I think sometimes when it comes to Black people in reality TV and just in, in, in the media in general, we don't offer that same level of grace. Now, if you don't apologize, if you don't change your behavior or what people do a lot, they apologize and then keep doing the same thing. That's on you. And I think it's hard, like in the sense of like, we think about like Jared and Ayana, like you said, they're the first black couple that we've seen on Love is Blind. We don't see a lot of black couples in reality television. Even like, I think of, you know, Rachel Lindsay on The Bachelorette. She didn't end up with any of the black guys, right? Like there's very few times in this reality show spaces where we are getting a black man and a black woman or two black men or two black women, you know, whatever the case is, like getting these black couples. And so when we see Jared and Ayana and we're like, damn, nigga, like, act right. Like just act, be we put a everything. lot of pressure on him. Yeah. We put a lot of pressure yeah. on him. And I think it goes yeah. into like, we place so much pressure on black people on reality television to be perfect because we know there's not a lot of representation of us in media in general. And what is sometimes is questionable. And then we think of the reality space where we, have really popularized the genre, but aren't being fairly compensated for that. And then we see like the love spaces where it's like, dang, we don't get black, sh- like black couples. Like y'all have to be the perfect black couple in order for this to work. And in our heads, we're like, well, if you act right on this show, then we'll have more of this. I think this really segues perfectly into the Oscars mm-hmm. um, with our good friend, Will Smith, you know, hauling off and slapping Chris Rock in the middle of the Oscars. Um, And just like the whole conversation of like, what is growth? What is accountability? What does it mean to be a human being having a human experience in front of a camera? Like, it just gives a lot of things. I know, Abby, we've talked about this and I know you wanted to discuss it. So I want to let you pop in. I step on my milk crate real quick. Um, So, you know, it's interesting because Mr. Willard Smith Jr. really just, I think he exemplified a couple of things. He's being applauded for the protection of his wife in, in her condition. But I also think that on the other side where people are like crucifying him, I'm, I'm not mad about it. Like, do I condone physical violence in response to, you know, the things that I don't like if someone says something I don't like, just like haul off and hit them? No. But am I mad about it? 
Not really. And I think that what we're having is a very layered conversation as a community, a Black community and public, because Will Smith, part of the reason why it's wild that that happened is because he's one of the Black tokens from Black men in Hollywood. He's the likable, fun guy. White people are cool with him. He's very likable to them. And he kind of stays out of the problematic eye. He just does crazy, fun, happy stuff. He's um, goofy. He, right. And he he makes them feel safe. And so it, it's it's very much a be like Will Smith type of space there. And so for him to be the person doing something that they find problematic, appalling, whatever, it disrupts the kind of fabricated and very problematic like statute that white people create for how Black men are supposed to behave in Hollywood. And there's this conversation going on around really like it's a double-headed faction of white supremacy because it works against Black people. It works against us on two fronts. One, we as Black people know we're not monolithic. So we're not all going to respond to that kind of situation the same way, especially given the emotional and like health condition basis that's going on with Jada that like she's been very open about. And I do not believe that Chris Rock didn't know that because don't call me an intimate friend. And I've been talking about something for six years and you don't know. And you don't know nothing about it. That don't make sense. Um, (laughs) But so there's, there's, there's that, right? But there's an expectation that we as Black people are monolithic. So, you know, how someone who is going to deal with something in a, in a nice and happy or friendly way should be how everyone deals with it. We know that's not true. So that's one fact of it. But then we place that on ourselves. And then we say, well, you know, we have to act appropriate because we are a mixed company. And if you do something that white people don't like, they're not going to invite us back. And you're a reflection on the whole race. Although we know that individually, we're not a reflection on the whole race. However, for white people, they never take that on. Like, if that were true, we had a former president who talked about grabbing women by the genitalia. That's not a representation of all white men, and they will not allow it to be. But the only thing that and it doesn't have to be because there's so much representation of them that we can have exactly individualistic understandings of what it means to be white. Exactly. And so it's like, as a black person, we are seen as a group in all things that are negative. One black person robs a bank, we're all thugs. One black person, you know, sells drugs, we're all drug dealers. The only time that Black people are seen as individuals is in success. There is one Oprah. There is one Will Smith. There is, you know, one, uh, even Barack and Michelle Obama. Like they, and even then, they were, you know, they were perfect, quote unquote, and they still got condemned for a number of different things, if not them, then for their children's actions. Mm-hmm. And so I think what the Will Smith situation represents beyond the misogynoir and the, you know, <laughs> ableism and everything else that, that happened on like a, internal to the black people level it also from an external perspective it gave a look at the fact that black people have real real reactions to stuff we're not just going to hide behind some people will hide behind twitter fingers but if that was the street like that it's not abnormal that that would have happened and you know and that's what i think people are really like that I, I i continue to say it is like everybody plays by different rules mm-hmm. and black people as a community we have very different rules when it comes to respect when it comes Absolutely. to Run it up, get done up, say something slick out of your mouth and something's going to happen. And I think like- F around and find out. Fuck around and find out. Like Will is from Philly. Like it, it was a natural reaction that I think made so much sense. But I think like you said, it's like, because it's the Oscars, everybody want to act embarrassed. But like your drunk uncles fight at the family reunion every August. And it's not that big a deal. Like it, I think it's the proximity and the white gaze of it all makes it, it's so shocking and it's so whatever. Yeah. But it's like, this is a normal thing. Like, he came for his wife's health mm-hmm. condition 10 feet in front of his face. Because Don't I'm going to tell, people faces. I'm gonna tell you something right now. If I, my spouse, I watch them every day. I watch them cry over involuntary hair loss because Jada's talked about it's one thing to cut your hair because you want to. It's another thing to have to because you can't. 
I have to help them build up their confidence before they go out. I've seen the tears and the emotional distress as they've gone through that. And we get in a room in front of our peers and you get loose lipped and you know we already have past beef. So you already know you're skating on thin ice on top of the fact that you're not even the host. You were up here to announce an award and you are completely off script. Mm-hmm. So you started talking and you decided to give up. I just, I cannot dismiss the humanity of the situation and how it happened. Now, Chris Rock on the other side, if I'm him, we would have really embarrassed Black people because we would have got to test it on the stage. But and that's, and that's really that. the thing to me. Like, Chris Rock can't swing back. I'm confused. Because everybody's acting. They keep calling it a brawl. A brawl was when two people fight. What happened was a slap. Right. And they both looked like they had been skiing the slopes a little bit, if you know what I mean. I'm just saying. Like, they was both looking yes. a little, little rough. Something that I wanted to mention, because again, there was this very big reaction from a lot of people. One reaction, most notably, was Judd Apatow. He tweeted. And he said, oh, that slap could have killed him. Killed him. The technicalities of that, I'm not even going to get into right now. But what I will say is, he said that could have killed him. And then he said, this was an act of complete and total rage. He was out of control, this, that, and the third. Now, I don't know if we all watched the same thing. Actually, I know for a fact we all watched the same thing. We all seen the clip. I mean, there were some people in person, but that doesn't change the fact that Will Smith, right? He walked up. He raised his hand. He smacked the man, and then he walked back. Now, I'm not trying to say that, you know, oh, it could have been worse, so don't complain, yada, yada, yada. But what I'm saying is something out of control would have been a lot more than one hit. It would have been a lot more. That was very much something that, like, was charged and was not to say premeditated because, like, you know, the moment, emotional. But to call him out of control with one slap was very interesting. It felt like a lot of reality television show fights, though, like, in the sense of, like, Half the time when these, you know, I mean, Bad Girls Club, they was probably really scrapping American for real. Like, I don't, it was just a different energy over there. But a lot of these shows, like, when they fight on these housewives shows, like, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel choreographed, but it's like, you know, you're not actually trying to really put somebody in a body bag. Like, oh, he hit him, but he wasn't trying to really hurt him. He was just trying to make his point clear. And, and I, I think, think it kind of gets like sorry. that. But. And I think it's evidenced by the fact that people didn't know if it was real or a joke at first. It wasn't until people saw him like yell from his seat, like keep my wife's name out your effing mouth that people was like, oh, wait, no, like this wasn't a joke. Because at first people were like, oh, because you know that they stage that kind of stuff because they dumb stuff to Oscars all the time. Yeah. And I think that if it because if he would have like, you know, gone back or got a kick or something in like and really started to beat him, it would have been different. And again, to your point, Caleb, I don't not to say like, oh, it could have been worse, but. To say that you could have killed him, like there was another woman, uh, it was like this white woman who's a doctor, just a regular person, who she had tweeted, like, if that were Betty White and he did that, he could have pushed her back and broken her cranium, causing her permanent brain damage. You calling people back from the grave, ma'am? From the grave. Like, she not even here. And I do know that that is part of the critique. People were like, well, if it wasn't Chris Rock, I don't think Will Smith would have done that. But I also think that that speaks to the volatility of the relationship and the fact that Chris Rock also knew better. Because I don't think if it was Steve Harvey, a set of the entertainer, he would have gone up there and did that. But I also don't think that they would have said that joke. And so I think Chris Rock knew what he was doing and was like, I'm gonna be slick. I'm gonna do it right now. And expected him to take it up behind closed doors. And... My thing is, then you're just, then a lot of people, especially Black people who are mad that he didn't just take it up behind closed doors, they're not mad about the slap. They're just mad he slapped him in public. And I'm like, so you're not angry and about And in public violence. at the Oscars. Because you're not angry about, about violence, then. These are also some of the same people, like they have that show on Zeus where they invite people who they know are sworn enemies. And they sit, I don't watch it, but they sit in a room and then they just let them, no camera, like they have cameras, but no, no ref, no nothing. And they just 
fight each other. And it's like, y'all don't have the same issue with that show, but because it's happening in front of white people and now, oh my goodness, we're never getting invited to the Oscars again. It's this whole big thing. But I think it really speaks to like, there are a lot of people in general, and I hate that people outside of the black community are also, you know, weighing in on the situation, so to speak. But like, what is growth and accountability? Like, Will Smith had a human reaction. You can argue the appropriateness of it, but it was a human reaction to being hurt and wounded. You know, he's apologized. Is there space for him to grow? Is there space for him to move? Like, what are we saying about like the ability, the ability to, grow? to make mistakes? And that's the reality is that I think for Black people, it's the fear that if we make a mistake, that we'll be cast out and won't ever be able to recover from it. But how do we get to be human if we can't participate in the human condition and the human experience, which is making mistakes at any age? Yes, Will Smith is like 52. However, he's still bound to to make a wrong decision. And he is still a work in progress. I watched his um his YouTube series where he talked about like writing his book and like he's actually been going through a lot of aggressive like mental health um therapy and counseling and like physical training and things like that because there's a lot of his life that he's kind of bagged up and bottled up and I also think that's why like most of the black men in the room were actually not they were surprised but not it was just like Denzel Tyler Perry even though I'm like you're the last person who should be standing up here Tyler but like you know they went over there the deacon board got together and they had a meeting and and I was talking to my friend today and I will just add this piece on here I don't think a lot of black people like Chris Rock and that's just evidence (laughs) to me by the fact that no one no one went to check on Chris after that. Everyone went to Will. Will was crying. <laughs> Denzel, Zendaya, Bradley Cooper went to Will. But nobody went to Chris Rock, okay? Charlemagne is the person he had to go to. And if Charlemagne is your only constellation, Will, you'd have made some enemies, friend. <laughs> I think, no. I think that the situation does speak to um, reality because, I mean, at the end of the day, the biggest critique of the Will Smith and Chris Rock incident is the fact that, like, it was an inappropriate place, inappropriate time to do it. And like, yeah, when people do turn on reality TV, specifically reality TV that is associated with black faces, you are expecting some slaps, you are expecting some cursing people out, you are expecting some drama. And then on top of that, the whole idea of people not knowing whether it was scripted or whether it was real, um, that also speaks to the fact that like, there's so much manipulation that goes on in reality TV There's so much manipulation that goes on in um, news that it kind of shakes, it creates a lot of distrust. I mean, I think that there's just a lot. I mean, I think it's layered. And I think the, the, the thing that reality television causes is the idea that we're, because we call it reality TV, we think these are real people in real situations, the way it happened. And obviously they're highly manipulated. A lot of these, you know, personalities, that's not even who they are in real life. Like, it's a highly fictionalized version of reality. So then when you have a Will Smith having a very human, real reaction in a real moment, it feels out of place because so much of our understanding of reality and reality television is highly um, created and formulated to suit a situation. But I think that it's just a very like interesting conversation to like layer reality TV in with what happened there. I mean, even... We don't have time really to get into it, but even we think about like how Katanji Brown had to comport herself during her confirmation hearings and all of these things that kind of play into like how we as Black people are always consistently holding the entire race on our backs when we just out here trying to be us. Then it just happens to be in front of a camera. I think, uh, you know, the late great Nipsey Hussle said it best, like 
I'm not from this whole funny world you from. Like, I'm not from this funny world. Like, I don't play by these same rules. Like, I'm a real person. And what you do has real actions and real consequences. And yeah, that might, you know, affect other people. But like, you ran up on me today. And this is what my response is. Right. And I think just to kind of close, like, my final thoughts, I think as Black people too, until we are able to liberate ourselves from the thought of what will white people do to me because of this, a huge part of that comes with ownership and not having to worry about whether or not we're going to be able to get a job or make money or take care of ourselves and our families, which Will Smith is in that kind of position. But I think for a lot of us, we have to kind of unpack that and unzip ourselves from that because as long as we create that, what they've done, like I said, is created that standard. And then they've created something that makes us hold ourselves to a standard that we didn't create for ourselves and that we'll never be able to live up to because the standard is perfection. So just honestly, I'm happy that, you know, the apology went forth. I'm interested to see what happens, but I definitely like want black people to like liberate themselves from that standard of perfection from whiteness. And that's really it. It's the liberation of it all for me. Um, are there any shows that you guys want to plug at the moment? The Gilded Age. Some people were like, eh, I don't watch it. It's going to be boring. Um, great show. They just finished season one last week. So all nine episodes are available on HBO Max. Um, first one's a little long, but definitely love what they did with that show. And All American Homecoming. I'm really loving the representation of HBCUs and like the cadre of experiences in terms of Black sexuality and other things. So those are two shows that I'm very much tuned into, as well as Bel Air. Very smart TV, very well-written TV. I can't rave enough about it. No Bel Air slander shall be tolerated. Literally no Bel Air slander can be tolerated. We have talked about Bel Air on too many episodes of the show because Bel Air is really a lot. Such a good show. Super smart writing, like you said. Um, what am I like? I feel like I'm like watching so many things. Um, I started watching Dave recently just because I think it's interesting. But I just really love Dave um, as opposed to my thoughts on Atlanta, which I love that it exists, but it's not for me. So I'm watching Dave currently and just really enjoying it. I mean, it's like a fun, it's pretty lighthearted. I like, I'm moving into this phase of my life where I like these half hour comedy dramedy situations. Get in, get out, tell me a quick story, entertain me and like, let's move on. But I'm really watching Dave and just really enjoying that right now. Season two really helped with my writer's block. But the show that I'll plug is called Unreal. I mentioned it. It's about reality TV. Given this is a reality TV episode, might as well. But thank you, Insomniacs, for listening. Abigail, do you want to give your uh, socials? Sure. You can follow me on Instagram at the Abigail J. Covington. You can follow me on Twitter, but y'all don't really be on Twitter like that. You know what's giving MLK Jr. Avenue. So I'm not there, but uh, I mean, I'm there, but I'm she not there. She said so. I'm good on any MLK. <laughs> the Abigail J. Cove on, on Twitter. Um, and then also on TikTok. And as always, thank you for listening. I'm Caleb. You can follow me at Caleb Subtitles anywhere. And I am Galen. You can follow me at G Smitty with two T's and four Y's on anything with the at symbol. As always, we are super thankful and super grateful for you all for listening. And until next time, bye, everybody. Adios.